This is an ABC podcast. Well, good day and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer. It's always great to have your company. Now, today on the show, one of America's leading experts on the Middle East and Islamic studies will soon talk about the Islamic world's China blind spot, as well as the rise of what he calls Western civilizationism. Daniel Pipes is the author of several influential books, including Militant Islam Riches America, that was published just after 9-11. He's president of the Middle East Forum in Philadelphia, and he's in Australia for his 15th time. Daniel Pipes, welcome back to ABC. Thanks so much, Tom. 15 times down under in about 30 years. Why do you like Australia so much? Well, you want me to say the sports or the weather, but no, I think it's uh, it's the country where the debate is most similar, most familiar to that in the United States. And so it's great to plunge into this alternate version of the sort of things that we're discussing. We haven't had the kind of populism that has roiled many parts of Europe and indeed the United States in 2016. From a distance, why do you think that's the case? I don't follow Australian politics that closely, but I am under the impression that you do have some of it, one nation and others. It's pretty much marginalised. It's 5% of the vote. It's not getting 20 30% that you're seeing in many parts of Europe, are you? No, but I think the elements are there for Australia to have a growth of a similar sort of populism. Mm -hmm. Now, you like the country, and yet you were deplatformed. It's an ugly word. You were deplatformed from the University of Western Australia in Perth last week. What happened? I was invited by the Liberal Society, the students, and apparently the student government decided that I'm too controversial. And so it instructed the Liberal Society that I may not appear. This wasn't the administration. It wasn't the adults. It was the students. Too controversial. Why are you seen as too controversial? We have to ask them. But um, my views are often mispresented. Uh, For example, I'm said to be anti-Islam when the slogan I repeat endlessly and will now repeat for you Mm. is radical Islam is the problem and moderate Islam Mm. is the solution. Doesn't sound like anti-Islam to me, but that's how I'm portrayed. And when you use the term Islamist, that clearly has the sense that it's a militant form of Islam. Right. There are some, those who are anti-Islam, say that Islam itself is the problem, and I say, no, it is a form of Islam. And they say Islam can't change, the Quran is immutable, and I say, well, yes, but how you understand the Quran changes. I'm a historian, and what I study has changed over time, and Islam changes. I wonder if you gave a speech at UWA on the Chinese persecution of the Muslim community Would the UWA activists allowed you into the campus? Good question. Well, let's talk about the discrimination of the Muslim community in China. How do you account for Beijing's brutality of the ethnic Uyghurs in northwest province of Xinjiang? Well, as with Hong Kong, the Chinese authorities cannot tolerate Uh, more than a modicum of difference, and they will clamp down. They will do what they have to do. I don't know what's going to happen in Hong Kong, but in Xinjiang, which is historically not part of China, modern-day China is an empire that was built by the Qing dynasty, and this is an imperial 
conquest that hundreds of years later remains uh, different. Now, it's changing because there's so many Han Chinese who are moving in, but mm. the indigenous population <clears throat> is Turkish and Muslim. They're called the Uyghurs. And they have wanted to be separate from China. It's a separatist movement. They've not wanted to be under Beijing's control. And that is unacceptable. And after enough time, and especially with uh, Chairman Xi's outlook, it said uh, the government said, no, we're going to clamp down. We're going to absolutely do whatever we have to do to uh, control Xinjiang. Robert Kaplan, a distinguished American commentator whom you know, past guest on Between the Lines, he says that the suppression of the Muslims is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, forging transportation corridors by land and sea across Eurasia. And uh, he argues that a Chinese-Iranian economic and infrastructure alliance, that has the potential to dominate Eurasia, but this requires a compliant Uyghur population. Well, that's the more reason to control the Uyghurs. I don't know if it's necessary to have the Belt and Road initiative be part of this, but that's certainly an additional impetus for Beijing to totally control. Beijing's defence is that the measures are designed to promote development and security for the locals. And to combat terrorism and radical Islam and so forth. There are certainly elements of truth in that, but you don't go after uh, the population at large. It looks like something towards one-fifth of the population is incarcerated at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Well, what's going on in these re-education or internment camps? Do we know? We have some idea because we've had reports of people who've left them. Uh, the inmates are forced to speak Chinese and... Uh, learn and repeat Chinese government propaganda. The general idea is not so much to turn them into sterling representatives of the communist government as to suppress, repress, and get rid of their Muslim Turkish identity. Is there any evidence that the Uyghurs harbor Islamic extremists? I'm sure there's some. It's a population of some 13 million. I'm sure there's some, but they're not the dominant force. The, domi the dominant political drive is to get Xinjiang out from under Beijing's thumb. Mm. Suppression of Muslims, you argue, won't work. Tell us about the historical examples. There are two examples that come to mind. One is the French in Algeria between 1832 and 1962, 130 years. And roughly similar period, the Russians and then the Soviets in Central Asia. In both cases, the colonial European power attempted to eradicate Islam, to make Islam not a factor, uh, because Islam is troublesome from a colonial point of view. And it didn't work. Uh, Algeria and, and Central Asia are yet Muslim, and indeed in some ways are more Muslim than they might mm. have been. And I suspect the same might be true of Xinjiang, that the net effect in the end of this repression, this severe repression, will be a more Muslim. So the consensus here is that the, the Uyghurs generally adhere to a moderate form of Islam, that the Chinese suppression of this Muslim community will backfire, as history shows, and that the, the systematic repression of the Uyghurs, that reveals the nature of this uh, regime in Beijing. Now, when the plight of the Uyghurs came up on a recent episode of the ABC's Q&A, uh, Penny Wong, she's Labor's shadow foreign minister, she and I were among others to stress that there were real limits on Australia's ability to stop Beijing's brutality and that although our political leaders are clearly right to raise these issues directly with the communist leaders in China, Canberra had to be pragmatic and not sacrifice 
our trade relationship. This ignited the following response uh, from Amnesty International's former spokesperson, Diana Syed. Yeah. Your response. <laughs> what you're essentially have all said on the panel here today is that Muslim lives don't matter. That's and that is right. exactly that's what that's true. True. it's That's what people are hearing well, at home, they're, they're hearing in the audience, and that is just so heartbreaking to hear that. And I'm just really disappointed because we have so many levers in the toolbox that we could be using to, to influence foreign policy. We could be using it a trade, and it doesn't, human rights are not mutually exclusive to our values around trade. And it's really important that we try to engage critically with these nations and try to influence when these things are happening. And it's not just happening, um, you know, it's a mass scale ethnic cleansing campaign in Myanmar, re-education camps of over a million Uyghur Muslims in China at the moment. And this is the most disappointing result, I think, from the panel tonight. Daniel Pipes, is Diana Syed and other human rights activists right to say that Western governments don't care about Muslim lives? It's preposterous. There were two contending letters to the United Nations in the past couple of months about the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. One was signed by 22 governments against the Chinese actions, and one was signed by 37 governments in favour of Beijing's actions. And it is remarkable to note that none of the Muslim-majority countries, governments, signed the former, that is say, anti-Beijing, mm. and quite a number of the 37, the latter, endorsed what the Chinese government is doing. So, if you're looking for a criticism of Beijing, you look to the non-Muslims, not the Muslims. I remember, I think it was 2009, about a decade ago, when deadly riots between the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese erupted, the Turkish president, Erdogan, called it a genocide. He called for a boycott of Chinese goods. His position's a lot different now. Why? It sure is. Turkey has had a long, important bond with what it calls East Turkestan, or what we're calling Xinjiang. They're all Turks. They speak somewhat the same language. And there are quite a few East Turkestan or Xinjiang refugees in Turkey. There's something of a lobby. They have political importance. And uh, it has been important for Turkish leaders to talk about Xinjiang and regret the Chinese colonial occupation and the like. All that's changed, as you point out, because China is richer and stronger and, in particular, sent over a billion U.S. dollars to the Turks a few weeks ago to help with their cash crunch. Uh, so Erdogan... Mohammed bin Salman, the Grand Prince of Saudi Arabia, and all the other Muslim leaders, Sisi of Egypt, uh, Jokowi of Indonesia, and on and on and on, are silent or, even worse, are endorsing the Chinese actions. Yeah, following on from Robert Kaplan's earlier point, though, about the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, you've got expanding military and technological muscle. I suppose from the perspective of these Muslim countries, China is simply too central an actor in their calculations, right? I think so. Uh, but I don't think it's just economics. I think it's, it's other things. I was just in Jakarta mm. and had an opportunity to discuss the issue there. And I came away with a sense that it's more than economics. Economics is certainly central. But it's other things. For example, the Indonesians suspect that this is American propaganda. They see this as an Islamist issue. The Islamists are about one-fourth, one-fifth of the vote. And they picked up, the Islamists, the radical Islamic types, picked up on Xinjiang and no one else did. So if you're going to talk about it, you are siding with them. 
they prefer to stay out of China's domestic issues and hope that everybody will stay out of Indonesia's mm. domestic issue. Yeah. But my understanding is that some Islamist movements in Indonesia have seized on the Uyghur cause to stage protests and to campaign against Jakarta. This is the Joko Widodo government that they say is too close to Beijing. Yes, agreed. Uh, I'm saying that it's only the SMS have taken this up as an issue. And therefore, if you are agreeing that Xinjiang is a problem, you're agreeing with the Islamists. I suppose what's frustrating here is that many of these governments have all too often picked on Israel for its treatment of the Palestinians. But a strong case could be made that the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs is far worse than anything the Israelis have done to the Palestinians. Far worse. The Israelis do not have concentration camps. And much else they're not doing. They're not trying to repress local Muslim identity, Palestinian culture and the like. No, this is quite telling that little Israel gets so much hostility and big China does not. But it's also telling that little Israel is not so little anymore. It's bigger in population and bigger in trade and mm. bigger in technology and it's getting more respect. Well, talking about Israel, it was subjected to a lot of heat from many Arab countries and governments over the years. But has the threat posed by Iran changed the nature of the Muslim world's response to Israel? I mean, has it led to a fracturing uh, of the Muslim world when it comes to Israel? It has indeed. And it's one of two main factors in the fracturing of the Muslim attitudes towards Israel. One is this fear of Iran and looking towards Israel for military and technological and other help. And two, one gets a sense that Muslim Arabs are a little tired of this question are seeing Palestinians more as intransigent, as they will never take yes for an answer. And you know there are other issues. Uh, this, the catastrophe, human catastrophe in Syria is brand new and much larger. Not to speak of the other countries that have civil war like Libya and Yemen and Iraq has its troubles, and Afghanistan and so forth. So why is everybody focused forever primarily on this issue? If you just tuned in, you're on RN with me, Tom Switzer, and my guest is Daniel Pipes. He's one of America's leading experts on the Middle East. Daniel, after Viktor Orban's landslide re-election about 18 months ago, you wrote a piece in the Australian newspaper on what you called the rise of Western civilizationism. What did you mean? I meant that there's a growing cohort of Europeans who are primarily worried not about climate change, human-induced climate change, but are worried primarily about demographics, immigration, multiculturalism, and Islamization. I call that civilizationalism because they're worried about the survival of Western civilization. And what governments or countries are we talking about here, other than Hungary? Foremost Hungary. Other governments have been partially or entirely ruled by civilizationalists. That would include Poland and the Czech Republic. Mm. It did until a few months ago include Austria and until a few days ago, Italy. Mm -hmm. It also to a certain extent includes Switzerland and Norway. The number of countries in which civilizationalists, people concerned primarily with the survival of Western civilization, are part of the government is increasing. And I take a deep breath and I predict that within 20 years, maybe sooner, uh, Europe will be dominated by this thinking. This is the key topic of the future. Many people listening in to your observations here would say that this means we're witnessing 
the rise of the far-right nationalist nativist movements. You don't like those descriptions, I do. I don't use the term far-right because the civilizationalist movements, as I understand them, are a medley of right and left. The right part is the nationalism, as you accurately point out. The left part gets less noticed and is economics. They're quite ready to have a state that engages in distribution. They want high taxes and good pensions and the like. They're not free marketeers. Could you make an analogy between these groups and Donald Trump? Not really, because Donald Trump is not focused on this issue. Well, hang on. America first? He, immigration controls? Nationalism? Yeah, but the, the immigration controls are about economics, not about culture. Trade barriers? About economics, not culture. Their interest is primarily civilizational culture. culture. Mm. A sense that Western culture is in play and could disappear. I don't think Americans, there are some to be sure, but it's not a political issue in the United States and I don't think Donald Trump represents that. Okay, so Poland and Hungary, we've dedicated a few episodes of Between the Lines uh, to those countries over the last few years. Uh, obviously in Hungary it's Orban, in Poland it's this law and justice party that's now in government. But they really, I mean, a lot of the sceptics will say, Daniel, they don't represent Western ideals when they're backsliding on liberal democracy, uh, the rule of law, market economics. Fair I'd point? agree. And I would add that there are anti, important anti-Semitic elements, anti-Islamic elements, cranky elements, conspiracy theorists, all true. I'm not saying this isn't true. I am saying that they have a truth that they have found, which is that they want Western civilization to survive. But you're saying that all things considered, these groups are a force for good, notwithstanding all of those blemishes. Right. And in particular, I make that argument because let's look at the other side, their opponents. Uh, don't we have a few blemishes there? Shall we start with Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, you know, mm. Yeah, this side is problematic. Uh, the other side's problematic too. But this side has an essential truth and the other side does not. For many of these people, including Orban, especially Orban, they have a soft spot for Vladimir Putin. Another reason to criticise them. <laughs> We're making a lot of reasons to criticise these groups. Of reasons, plenty of reasons, yes. <laughs> They're anti-American, pro-Erdogan, pro-Putin. Yep, agree with it all. Now, you say these parties bring critical benefits to the political arena. Tell us more. Because they enter this topic into the public debate. So contrast the UK, where there is no such party. In particular, Nigel Farage is not interested in this. He's interested in the Polish plumber. He's not interested in, in the civilizational aspect. And, and, and no one else has managed to put together a party. So in the UK, it's just not a topic that goes anywhere. Uh, in contrast, the countries you've mentioned, plus many others, Spain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, on and on, uh, Scandinavia, Germany, uh, this is the issue. The civilizationalist parties have brought this issue and made it central. Okay, what about the national rally, Le Pen's party in France? What distinguishes her from, say, her father? One of the uh, reasons why... Who was widely seen as a neo-Nazi. It's a bit strong, but yeah, uh, fascist certainly. One of the good things that's happening is that these parties are evolving in the right direction. The two oldest are the Freedom Party of Austria, which goes back to the 50s, and the National Rally, which goes back to 1972. Most of them are much newer. Uh, they had very bad elements, but they're getting better. 
And it's symbolized by the Le Pen family. Jean-Marie Le Pen founded, co-founded the party in 1972. His daughter, Marine, threw him out of the party in 2015 mm. for anti-Semitism. Mm. And her niece, Marshal Le Pen, is yet better than she is. So it's going in the right direction. It's obviously not a linear thing, but in general, if you want to get votes, if you want to become prime minister of your country, anti-Semitism and cranky uh, economic theories are not going to get you there. What about the social democrat and leftist parties in Europe? How are they generally responding to the rise of these movements? That's really interesting because their basic outlook is this is great. Replacing Western civilization, bring it on. But there is a counter-movement, at this point still fairly small, that says, wait a minute, the workers are our focus and workers' interests are harmed by this massive immigration. And there have been a number of politicians in Europe who are standing up to it. Corbyn, for example, is not interested in immigration. Uh, Mélenchon, the far left, is French politician. Mm. Uh, there was a movement for a while in, in Germany, Aufstehen, Bernie Sanders in the United States, none of them are enthusiastic about immigration. Not so much for environmental reasons, as I alluded to earlier, but because there's a competition for workers. So your line then is that there are some left-wing movements in Europe and indeed in America that have begun to take note of these voters uh, that they've lost. Right. So the, the working class base, they're if you like. They're not focused on Western civilization. They're, vote, they're focused on workers' and, rights and they're focused on, on elections. And, and these are workers who tend to be economically and culturally on the front lines. Right, who used to vote for the left, in particular the Communist Party, mm -hmm. and have switched over. And Le Pen's case is very dramatic. The town where she does best these days uh, is the town that was most, among those that were most dominated by the communists in the old era. Fascinating. But again, couldn't you say that a bit about Trump and his appeal to those working class, blue collar workers in those rust belt states in the United States? I think of Wisconsin, which didn't go Republican since Ronald Reagan in 1984, Michigan, well, even Pennsylvania. Better, even better is West Virginia, which is West Virginia, yeah. an outstandingly blue collar state. I agree. Uh, the same phenomenon is taking place all over the Western world, that leftist parties are less and less focused on the workers and more and more focused on college-educated uh, white-collar interests and you know, identity politics and so forth. And so they've lost the workers to a considerable extent. But again, I make the point that there's a cultural dimension, a civilizational dimension in Europe that we don't really see in Australia, we don't really mm. see in the United States. Fascinating. So let's just summarize your argument here. Uh, these movements, led by the likes of Orban in Hungary, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, a national rally in France, they're often derided as nativist and nationalist far-right movements. You acknowledge their many flaws, but these groups, by focusing on immigration and Islamism, are they're essential for Europe not to become an extension of Northern Africa, but to remain part of the Western civilization it helped create. Sounds good. If you just tuned in, you're on RN with me, Tom Switzer, and my guest is Daniel Pipes. He's president of the Middle East Forum in Philadelphia. Now, Daniel, keeping with the European theme, in the Washington Times about a year ago, uh, you wrote about Europe's most important politicians. Let's go through them. Top five, Austria's vice-chancellor. Well, the theme of this discussion will be how these people make mistakes and flame out. Uh, Hans Christian Strache, 
was something of a honey trap. Uh, he was really cozy with this would-be Russian autocrat, pretty woman, and said all sorts of things he shouldn't have said. And bam, as soon as the tape was released, he was out of the government. The government fell in their elections in a few, couple of weeks. Wow. So he's gone for now. What's the Washington definition of a gaffe when a politician inadvertently tells the truth? Yeah, he was talking about doing favors for her. If she did favors for him, it didn't go over well. Okay, number four, Germany's interior minister. Uh, Seehofer has somewhat disappeared, so he's no longer on my list either. But he, he was battling Merkel yeah, to keep illegal migrants out of the country, right? And he stopped. Number three, Italy's interior minister. Well, this is a real flame out. And just in recent days... He has gone up... This is Matteo Salvini. Uh, sorry, Matteo Salvini has gone up uh, very strongly in the polls. He got something like 17% of the vote a year and a half ago, and then he got 37% of the vote in European elections uh, three months ago. And he said, well, it looks like I can be prime minister, because he isn't. He's been deputy prime minister. He's been governing with the far-left coalition, right? With the anarchists, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he made a play, and instead of bringing down the government... He brought his opponents together, and now they form a government, and he's out. So that's, again, a sign of the amateurism. Well, but again, this raises doubts about these groups you're lionizing. I'm not quite lionizing. I'm saying <laughs> they're really important. But they have a long way to go to become uh, normal political parties. They're going in that direction, and as these potted biographies suggest, they make major mistakes. Number two, Poland's former prime minister. Jaroslaw Kaczynski. Uh, is behind the scenes the key figure of the Law and Order Party and has done a pretty good job. He has not flamed out. Uh, it doesn't look too good for this party in the next elections, but uh, it has a solid base. And number one, Viktor Orban. Orban is the star of this movement. He has the strongest party in Europe. His party was the only one in the recent European elections to get over 50% of his country's vote. He's an intellectual. He reads books every Thursday. Every Thursday is what he takes, he takes the day off. off. He takes the day off. He takes the day off from yeah, work and yeah. just reads books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think many political leaders are like I, that. I don't think so, or anybody else. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he became. I'll put you on the spot here. He's praised illiberal democracy. Yeah, which by which it's an unfortunate term, but what he means is conservative democracy. So I'm not no need for the rule of law or stacking the judiciary with your cronies. Yeah, and there are plenty of problems. The plenty of public problems. broadcaster, all that. Plenty of problems. Yeah. Yes, he reaches too far. I concur. Uh, he sold citizenship to all sorts of people who shouldn't have had it. Yeah, I'm not denying the criticisms. I am saying that he also has a vision, kind of articulated for Hungarians and beyond, and. In that sense, he is the most important politician in Europe because he's raising issues. And it's striking to note that the British want out of the EU, obviously, famously, but Orban wants to take over the EU for a country of 10 million uh, that has no particular force in European history to have such aspirations. Now, he would not tell you that, but I'm telling you that for him. Mm. Uh, this is remarkable. And I think uh, Hungary, and in particular, Eastern Europe in general, has a bright future. It's, it's ironic, I'm saying this as an American, to see that the part of Europe, Western Europe, that was part of NATO under American ages through the Cold War has got it all wrong today. And I'm exaggerating, but has it more wrong than right. And the ex-Soviet bloc, the Warsaw Pact countries, have got it more right than wrong. They have learned from their experience and they're smarter about the current set of problems. 
Daniel, it's uh, great to see you again and thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Tom. Great to have you on the program. That was Daniel Pipes, President of the Middle East Forum in Philadelphia. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. I hope you enjoyed Daniel Pipes as much as I did. He's a force of nature and it was a very controversial, contrarian argument. But remember, as John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century British liberal once said, those who know only his own position, they know little of that. So bear that in mind. And remember, if you'd like to go back and listen to past episodes of Between the Lines, including the Kevin Rudd-John Mearsheimer exchange on Australia-China or the Conrad Black-Simon Heffer exchange on Boris Johnson, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.